Doesn't that feel good? Let's turn in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 10. Last week we went through Romans 9 as Paul was talking about the Jews and just the love that he has for them and the fact too though that God has cut Gentiles in on the deal because, and, and Paul's showing through these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, that the gospel isn't something that's just a totally new thing. God didn't just make up a whole new way of getting people saved. It was always by grace. It was always through faith. It was never by just doing the right things that you would then get God's righteousness. And you certainly could not make yourself righteous. That didn't work in the Old Testament. That won't work today. And, and he's really driving that home. And here in the 10th chapter, he quotes a lot of scriptures from Moses, from Isaiah, just again trying to drive his point home. Now, what he isn't saying is that you could have figured all this out from the Old Testament, but what he, what he is trying to establish is this isn't just something completely new. This is, a, this is God's dealing with people in a way that's consistent with what God's nature has always been and how he's always dealt with people. And so chapter 9 ended by him saying, What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. And so he says, yeah, that is true, that a lot of Jews missed out on what God had for them, and now Gentiles are benefiting from their understanding of the gospel, and they're getting a righteousness for free that Jews who tried really hard to obey the law didn't get, because it's not about trying hard. It's not about what you do in order to earn it, and so He's continuing in that vein here in chapter 10, and he begins again with this heart of compassion. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Remember, he started the ninth chapter by saying he would go to hell if he could get his Jewish brothers saved. And so here again, he's going, man, this is my heart's desire and this is my prayer, that Israel would be saved. By the way, it goes to show you that if you want someone to get saved, um, it's good to pray for them. I've heard people say that, oh, you shouldn't pray that people get saved, but Paul didn't know that. He did. <laughs> and it, it's an interesting juxtaposition, too, because he's calling these brothers of his brethren and many of them were Gentiles, and yet you see his heart for Israel, wanting them to be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. I mean, they tried really hard. They meant really well. 
they would have done anything God told them to do to get saved. But the one thing that they weren't prepared to do to get saved is nothing, (laughs) is just believe. They really thought that they had to do something, and they kind of felt like it's not really worthwhile if it's free. That just sounds too good to be true. I insist on being religious. I insist on doing something to gain a standing before God. And they were to be commended for their zeal. And he does. He goes, hey, they're really into it. But it's not according to knowledge. Zeal doesn't doesn't save anyone. People don't get saved by being sincere. People don't get saved by wanting to get saved really bad. Because people can't do anything to get themselves saved. It's what God has done that then if we put our faith in him and we believe what he has said and we receive his righteousness from him that's the only way to get saved so it's tragic that they wanted it so badly and yet they didn't understand how to actually receive the gospel to really receive god's righteousness and that's true of every religious person on the face of the earth today and and a part of our prayers should be for religious people who haven't accepted the gospel, who haven't accepted Jesus Christ. I hope that, you know, when you see the members of the various cults coming through the neighborhood and trying to pull people into their religious persuasion, that you don't just think, oh, I had to run down that 10 speed, you know, (laughs) or, you know, what, you know, why don't I live in a gated community so they won't come here or whatever? But our reaction should be to look at those people with compassion and to really hold them up before God because it's really sad when people have bought into a religion that makes them feel like if they can just be good enough, then they can get saved. It's tragic because it'll never work. There isn't any member of any legalistic group, whether a non-Christian cult, whether a a non-Christian religion of some other sort, or whether people who are trying to do it within Christianity, legalism will never save. And it will always just leave those its adherents frustrated. And the people who are the most frustrated are the ones who believe it the most, those with a lot of zeal. And that's really sad. You know, I, I think of all the people who are a part of the, the um, Roman Catholic faith because they were just kind of born into it. There are certainly people who are in the Catholic faith who have discovered salvation by grace through faith, so I'm not bagging on, on, on you know, Catholics at all, but an awful lot of the people in Catholicism, because the message of Catholicism so often is a legalistic message that you need to be good and then... You know, if you're good enough, then, you know, that'll somehow gain standing before God and the saints will help you and Mary will help you, but you need to go on these, you know, journeys and you need to count the beads and you need to say the Hail Marys and you need to give money and you need indulgences and all that sort of thing. The, most people in Catholicism, let's face it, they gave up a long time ago. 
And I don't feel all that bad for them, you know, because they, I remember reading um, a book by a, a, a guy who's, who isn't alive anymore, but, but his, uh, his, his kind of testimony as a Catholic, and he said, he talked about the fact that, uh, um, his, his name was William F. Buckley, and he talked about the fact that when John Kennedy, JFK, began running for president, people really freaked out because they thought a devout Catholic as president, that, that would be a problem. Because they knew, for instance, that somebody who's a really good Catholic would put the Vatican above, certainly, our you know, nation and things like that. And that was disturbing to them. And some of the positions of the Vatican were much different than the positions of, of Kennedy's political party, the Democratic Party, certainly. And so Buckley said, at first, people said, there's no way a Catholic could become a Christian, could become the president, I'm sorry. But he said, after things started leaking out about JFK's personal life, it actually caused people to relax a little. Because he said, he said the rest of the world found out what all Catholics knew all along. And that is, we really don't let our faith get in the way of our lifestyle. And I thought that was an interesting observation. And, it, and you could say the same thing for Baptist or Calvary Chapel or anybody else, where if people are approaching it from a legalistic standpoint and they're just wanting to be a part of, of you know, what's going on and they want to be good and they want to make other people think they're good, um, that really doesn't end up affecting you long term. Most people just decide not to worry about it anymore. I mean, it's why it, it, many of you wonder how devout, supposedly devout Catholics can support abortion when the Catholic position is not vague at all. The Catholic Church takes as strong a position against abortion as you could possibly take, and yet there are so many Catholics who are also a part of the Democratic Party, which a major part of their um, you know, their platform is pro-abortion, and you go, how does that happen? Well, obviously, most of them have come to a point where they just don't let, you know, they ate fish on Friday before you were supposed to, you know, they, they would do our beef, you know, and, and they've just come to terms with it and go, you know, I can't really do this, so I'll put my religion kind of on the shelf. Now, that's a really sorry thing to have happen, especially when you really believe that somehow what you do is going to affect your eternal future. Now, but the ones I feel really sorry for are the people who are really trying to live it. The most devout religious people are the most tragic ones. So, uh, for instance, um, maybe some of you have read some of the... Um, memoirs or the letters that have come out from Mother Teresa um, since she died. Letters that she wrote um, talking to some of her mentors and things like that. And that poor woman who is just a, I mean, a really special person with so much compassion and nobody believed more than she did, and yet she constantly struggled because she didn't feel like she was good enough. She felt condemned she she was the real deal you couldn't be a more devout catholic than someone like her 
And there are other people, um, Henri Nouwen, who's just a, a very a Catholic priest, a very devout Catholic, and, and you read the struggles of their lives, and, and it doesn't make you go, oh, those stupid Catholics, it breaks your heart. In the same way that Jews who are so sincerely into their Judaism, and yet they haven't discovered the beauty of grace. And, and so our prayers always should be for, especially for those people who are deeply sincere in whatever church, in whatever religion that they are in. The ones who are so into their stuff that they're out there pushing it door to door. The ones who devote their lives. The ones who, who allow themselves to pledge a lifetime of celibacy because they believe so strongly how I, how I would love for those people to be saved. I look at, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people within the Mormon church, and I, and I, you know, I used to just look at them as someone to argue with, and, you know, but I realize they just need to be set free. They just need to understand what the cross really means and what God's grace really is. And I, I'm not interested in arguing with them or trying to prove them wrong. I, the real place to take that is in prayer to the Lord. And just like Paul says, to go, God, look at their zeal. But they just don't know you. They just don't understand what grace is really all about. They don't understand where forgiveness can come from. And so his heart was not one of, I'm better than them, or I even want to argue with them. His heart was, it's so sad that someone can be so sincere and yet just be missing a key piece of knowledge the knowledge of the grace of God, the knowledge of the gospel, the good news, the cross of Christ and what that means to us. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It started really with man recognizing that he needed help but it ended when jesus said it is finished and now there is no one else that has to do anything there's no one else that has to generate their own righteousness in order for salvation to happen jesus christ is the pinnacle he is the full total expression of god's program for mankind it all comes down to him. It's why the expression, the crux of the matter, it's where that came from. Crux is the Latin word for cross. And when we say something is the crux of the matter, we're saying that's what it all comes down to. That's what it all hangs on. This point is as important to the argument as the cross is to the Christian understanding of faith. And so Paul is going... It doesn't matter how well-meaning someone is. If they don't realize that righteousness can be given to them by Jesus Christ, it's a tragedy. Righteousness to everyone who believes. That's the end of the law. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law and says, the man who does those things shall live by them. That is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 30 when Moses was kind of summarizing 
everything, giving his final speech there in the end of Deuteronomy. And he's just letting the people know the nature of the law is you have to do it. Now, that's the law. And, but he goes on to say, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. And he, um, you know, here quotes in, um, well, in verse 5 was a quote from Leviticus, but now he quotes from Deuteronomy 30 and says, the right, here's what faith is about. So Moses said when he gave the law in Leviticus, do this or die, basically. But then when he was summing everything up, he said, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? And then Paul edits in there, that is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? And he edits, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, That is the word of faith which we preach. So he says, on the one hand, Moses gave the law and said, you have to do it. But people couldn't do it. And now he talks about Moses talking about the fact that it's not that complicated. Here in Deuteronomy 30, and by the way, if you go back and look at that passage, Paul is quoting it kind of loosely He mentions the abyss, if you look at it in Deuteronomy 30, either in the Hebrew or in the Septuagint, because often when a quote varies, it's because they quote from the Greek Bible, the Septuagint. But um, in this case, either one of them talks about the sea, going over the sea. And Paul's just taking it to the logical conclusion, to the abyss, the abuso, which was their concept of where people go when they die but it was also a word that referred to you know, the bottom of the ocean. His, Moses' point in saying this was, look, the truth is out there. God is revealing himself. And even at that point, it was by faith. Salvation wasn't going to come by the law, but putting your faith in God is what ultimately saves you. Paul has made that really clear earlier. But what he's saying is, Moses, in saying this, said, look, nobody's going to you know, um, ascend into heaven for you. You don't need that to happen. Well, Paul goes, Jesus already did it, beat you to it. But for Moses, it was like, look, you don't need to find some stairway to heaven in order to find out what God is saying to you. And not only that, you don't need to go across the sea or into the grave, as Paul editorializes here and says, Jesus already did that for you. But notice um, verse 8, Moses says this, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And then Paul says, that's the word of faith which we preach. See, what Moses was saying there in Deuteronomy 30 was it's not brain surgery, This is something that God is clearly saying. Now, the whole gospel wasn't completely clear, but even in the case of Moses, he was telling them, this isn't complicated. This isn't all about you making yourself good. The purpose of the law was to cause people to realize that they can't follow it, to throw themselves on the mercy of the court, and to appeal to God for grace and mercy. That's what the sacrificial system was about 
if you were really going to take care of your sin, you'd have to kill yourself. And then it's too late. So they would kill a lamb, which was a picture of the lamb that God would provide in his son, ultimately. But Moses was saying, you guys are going to complicate this. And so often what they ended up doing as a result was disobeying radically. Because always, when you try really hard to obey and you can't do it, you then get frustrated and you fall apart and things get a whole lot worse. But Moses was telling him, no, it's right in front of your face. What God wants is a relationship with you. What God wants is, to, is, is for you to have a heart for him, for you to walk with him, for you to submit to him. Submission's a huge concept throughout the Old Testament. And it's the bottom line for each of us as well. And so Paul is saying, it's not that complicated. When you try to live by the law, when you try to make yourself righteous, you will always complicate the picture way beyond what it needs to be. It's not that complicated. You don't need to nail it down to every little individual, you know, is this right or is this right or should I do this or should I do that? It's God's right there. He wants a relationship with you. I had somebody call me today who was in a real dilemma trying to figure out what he should do in a particular situation. And basically, he was having to choose between a couple of things that are both wrong. And he saw it pretty simply. And what he really wanted me to do was to give him permission to go ahead and do something that, that was illegal. And that, you know, and he had some pretty good reasons why it would be a good idea and everything. But I go, you know, I. I can't tell you to do something that I think is wrong. I can't tell you to compromise like that. I'm not going to do that for you. And I finally, you know, I just said to him, he, he was telling me, man, I've been doing great with the Lord. I'm getting closer to God all the time. I've grown so much through trials I'm going through and everything. And I'm, I'm going, that's great. Then I said, you know what to do, don't you? He goes, yeah. <laughs> okay, do the right thing. And we so often complicate it. We so often come up with all sorts of fancy ways of making life this huge jigsaw puzzle when it all comes down to, why don't you do what God tells you to do? Why don't you just do the right thing? Why don't you draw close to him, submit to him? First, if you tell him, God, I will do whatever you want me to do, and that's the hard part, then just do it. Just do, just do it. And the, his spirit will help you to do that based on a relationship. But what if I'm wrong? It's okay. If you're wrong, he'll forgive you. But what if I make a bad decision? Back up to Romans 8, 28. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It's not that complicated. We don't need to think so hard. We don't need to figure it out. It's really not so dependent upon us. And, and that's what Paul is trying to help them to see. And then he comes to this great verse after saying, it's just right there. It's right in your mouth, you know. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, or Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
starts in the heart. So do you believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead? That's basically what it takes for him to save us. Then by your mouth do you go, yep, I agree. Jesus is Lord. I, I confess Jesus as Lord. I want him to run my life. And he says, if you do that, you'll be saved. Don't worry about everything else. Don't try, don't try to overcomplicate it. It's, it's clear and it's true and it's the gospel. And then he explains, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So when that happens in our hearts, we believe unto righteousness. That is, we trust him to provide that righteousness. But a part of it, obviously, has to do with, if I really believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, and I've really decided to agree that he is my Lord, I'm also saying, God, I want you to give me your righteousness. You can't hold back. He's either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. And when you become saved, you come to the point where you go, I want to do things your way. If you still want to do things your own way, you're just not ready to get saved yet. But he says, it's really pretty simple. Is he going to be the Lord? Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you don't hesitate and waver and fail constantly. But the bottom line is, at some point, have you decided, I really want to do it his way? And I really believe that he is who the Bible says he is. And so he says, it's as simple as that. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So again, he, now he's quoting Isaiah over in Isaiah 28. And when you look at it over in Isaiah 28, the translation is a little bit different. Instead of will not be put to shame, it's, you know, won't um, act hastily. But the idea is, um, either way, is that there's a solidness that comes when we get to the point where we say, I believe on him. And this is something that Isaiah was talking about back in Isaiah 28. It's something that Paul is talking about today. Just believe. Just believe. Just receive his righteousness by putting your faith in him. And it's that belief that then primes the pump of of obedience and righteousness is given to you and and then it, it will end up giving you solid footing on solid ground. You won't be put to shame. You won't be flaky. You won't be bouncing around back and forth. You'll be locked into what God wants to do. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now that's interesting because in these three chapters Paul's making a distinction. He, he's not saying that that you know there isn't any sort of difference between you know Jews and Greeks but what he says is the same lord overall is rich to all who call upon him so the idea is this was true in the old testament if someone would put their faith in god and believe him then he would cover their sin through the sacrificial system or even before the sacrificial system like in the case of Abraham, 
Before he could do anything, he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So he's saying, it's the same thing. The only way anyone can get righteous is if God gives it to them through faith. So people who believe somehow that Jews get a separate deal, now, I don't believe that, I I believe there is a distinction in some ways between the church and Israel, but when it comes to how they get saved, the Jews, for instance, during the tribulation period, many of them are going to come to faith in, in Jesus Christ. They're not going to get saved by being Jewish. And God doesn't have a separate means of salvation, even though there are some people who um, wrongfully teach that, like John Hagee. The, the truth is, the Bible teaches very clearly, no, everyone who is saved is saved the same way. And that's why he says God doesn't go, okay, how do you, you want to be saved? Let me check your credentials. Are you Jewish or are you Gentile? Because I have one deal for Gentiles and the other deal for Jews. No, it's faith in the sacrifice of the Son of God that will allow anyone to get saved. So God doesn't go, sorry, you're a little too Gentile for me. I'm not going to save you. Or he doesn't say, ooh, you're a Jew. No. It's faith in, in God, faith in Jesus Christ, faith in the gospel. And he goes on to say, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, calling on the name of the Lord is not, you know, um, just the idea that you ask God to forgive you when you become a Christian. And the idea there, and it's a, it's a quote from Joel chapter 2, when, when Joel is prophesying concerning the church age, and as it was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit was poured out and everything, it's, you know, what he is saying is, those who call on the name of the Lord it's in the present tense, it's if you are living your life in submission to him, if you are praying to him, if you are asking him for help, if you acknowledge that you need him in order for you to be right before God, then you're saved. It's not just, okay, you pray, now you're saved, that's it. It's a principle that he's giving here Are you calling on the name of the Lord? And as a definition of people who are saved, that's a pretty good one. Are you really, I mean, and obviously in the context, believing in the resurrection, putting your faith in God, and now being someone who depends on him. Calling on him as opposed to calling on our own righteousness. So then he goes on and says, Speaking of calling, how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? So once you believe in him, then you begin to call on him. And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So you can't believe unless somebody tells you. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? So his whole progression here is to make it clear that this is all about salvation coming by faith as a gift from God 
But to get this word out, somebody needs to tell people about it. In order for somebody to to preach, someone has to send them. So someone makes it possible for someone else to do the preaching, which then allows people to hear and to believe and to enter into this relationship and to now learn what it is to call upon God and to depend on him. And this is a this is an important point that he brings up in this, in this respect because he doesn't want the people to just settle for the kind of an idea that, well, if they're supposed to hear, they're going to hear. you know, Or to look down on people who haven't put their faith in Jesus Christ. He says, hey, you have a responsibility. Maybe you're not called to preach, but if you're not called to preach, you're called to send. You're called to equip others. You may not be able to go halfway around the world, say, to the Ukraine, like Michelle Nicely is, and, and uh, you know, to, for the last 10 years as she's been telling homeless kids on the streets of, of Kiev um, about the good news that they can be saved. Um, we all can't do that, but we can participate by sending someone who can. And that's what, sending is what starts the ball rolling. Nobody could preach if somebody wouldn't send them and help them to have those opportunities and support them in whatever way possible. There are a ton of other ways in which we can be involved in that sending process by facilitating things. The, the guys that go down just about every month to Mexico and, and with Lyndon, they're, they're building facilities for the churches and outreaches down there now you uh, i wouldn't ever have Lyndon preach but he's really good at building and i think guys like mark over here you know great builders not really preachers but when whenever you lift a tool to do what it is that you do and you're making it possible for other people then to spread that news Paul's point is, man, we all get to be a part of this. We all get to participate in this. And then the good news spreads. Now, if you know someone who's really gifted at sharing their faith, that's a wonderful gift and a wonderful calling. But, you know, when you do that a lot, it can get discouraging. It can be hard and draining because you're pouring your heart out and you're telling people about how they can find an eternity with God. And, you know, a lot of times they don't respond. But how important it is to to be a part of the sending process of encouraging people who are doing that, of telling them, I so appreciate the gifts that you have and, and how God is using you. We all get to be a part of this together. We're all in it together. And in the same way that Salvation comes simply as a gift. In that same way, the whole process of how the gospel is spread is something that we all get to be a part of, and that's his point. There's nothing more important than spreading the gospel, giving people an opportunity for eternity. But there are millions of different ways that God can use you in that process and to see that happen. But what it's all about ultimately is for the message to get out there. But there's just a ton of ways 
to do that. And, and it's exciting that that's the truth. And, and then he quotes um, Isaiah there in Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So this is a beautiful thing when this process happens because whenever we share the reality of the gospel, we're setting people free. So many people in this world are completely trapped. Now, they may be locked up like the ladies that Arlen and, and some of the other ladies go and minister in the prisons and some of the guys go and minister in the prisons. And Yeah, in those cases, the people are literally locked up. But I'll tell you something, the people that you know who don't know Jesus are every bit as locked up. And many of them are even people who think they understand about Christianity and they haven't discovered the glory of the grace of God. And we have the opportunity to set them free. And when we do that, it's a beautiful thing. I love any time I can talk to somebody who seems so trapped and then to just see something click and and they light up and they begin to understand it. It's such a privilege to share that with others. Now, he kind of gets back to the subject. He says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. (laughs) This doesn't work every time. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? That was Isaiah 53, started the chapter that way. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he goes on to talk about the fact that we've all gone astray and, you know, the Lord laid on our sacrifice, Jesus, the iniquities of us all, but he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He was rejected. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So he goes, you could figure this out even from Isaiah, the great prophet, who said, no, a lot of people don't accept it. A lot of people aren't ready for this message. But he says, uh, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So you have to hear. What you need to hear is the word of God. And faith can be the result of that. But it isn't always. This isn't a guarantee that hearing the word of God will always result in faith. But certainly, if you need more faith... You want to get into the Word of God more. But the point, really, and often this, some of these verses are taken out of context quite a bit, but his point here is, look, get the Word out there, and people will have the opportunity to believe. They may not believe. Most of them probably won't. But if God's Word doesn't return void, it always brings about good results, ultimately. And so... If you want people to have faith, don't tell them to have faith. Share the truth of the Word of God with them. And then faith will often be a result. But remember the context, everybody doesn't believe. You can't make people believe. And he goes on and then quotes there. and He says, but I say, have they not heard? Because you go, well, wait, how fair is it if some people get preachers and other people don't? Some people hear the Word and... Other people don't. So he answers that objection. Have they not heard? Yes, indeed. And quoting Psalm 19, their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declaring the glory of God, the firmament 
shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter a speech, night unto night showeth forth knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out to the end of the earth and so on. So he's going, look, people who don't hear don't have an excuse because they have rejected whatever light they have had. They, if they even could look at this world, it could cause them to desire to know more about the God who made it and to really seek him. And if you seek him, you'll be found of him. So Paul's going, people who haven't really heard all the details of the gospel are still without excuse. I want to make that clear to you because everyone isn't going to hear. But if you care, you should want as many people as possible to hear as much of the word of God as possible because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's why, you know, as long as you can get away with it, you should make your kids go to church. You know, now it get, comes to a point where you probably can't do it, but I would leverage in every way possible to, to encourage, to bribe, to coerce, whatever you have to do to get as much of God's Word into your kids as you possibly can. Now, again, that won't force them. You have to make them think it's kind of their idea, and it won't force them to believe, but it gives them an opportunity to believe. The day comes when if they reject that and you can't help that, you have to release them to the Lord. But even then when you share with them little bits of God's word, instead of constantly harping at them about their sin, you know, it's wrong for you to be doing what you're doing, sharing the goodness of God, sharing the blessings of God's word, letting them know some of the things that God has done in your life through his word. And, and exciting things that you hear coming from God. All of that is, again, piling on more opportunities for faith to take root. It's planting the word that primes that pump and gets things going. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. And this happened consistently throughout the Old Testament where God would bless some Gentile nation in order to cause Israel to repent and turn back to God. And then there are several prophecies looking down the road talking about the salvation of Gentiles. So that was always God's program, even from when he came to Abraham and said, in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. God wanted to do it. <clears throat> he wanted to have a special relationship with, with the Jews. Often he would bless the Gentiles in order to get the Jews' attention, and often it worked. When they saw their own circumstances and then they saw God blessing somebody else, they were like, hey, what about us? They would turn to God and then God in turn would bless them. And then he goes ahead and, and uh, quoting here from Isaiah, chapter 65, Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Turn back to Isaiah 65 and you'll see this in the context that he's saying. 
He's calling his people to repentance. But he says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So he's looking forward in in prophecy to him dealing with all people. And he's talking about his grace, referring to the fact that, hey, people aren't seeking after God, but he makes opportunities available to people by his grace. And ultimately, that's what Isaiah talks a lot about, ultimately, the Gentile salvation. Um, But then he goes on to say, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things is in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. God here is telling the children of Israel, man, I've done everything I can for you, and you guys are rejecting me. You're, you're turning away from me. You're worshiping idols. I've extended myself to you, and doesn't seem to do a bit of good. And so as a result, I'm going to find some people who will respond to me, and I'm going to save them. Now we're going to see here in Romans, and going into chapter 11, you see it a lot more, God's intentional using of Gentiles to get the Jews jealous, to cause them to go, hey, wait a minute, he's our God, we're his people. And it's really, uh, that really, that happens, especially when the Gentiles who come to faith in Jesus Christ have the kind of concern for the Jews that cause them to reach out to them in love. Now, today, it's hard for many Jews to look on, you know, um, Christianity and go, I want some of that. Because in the name of Christianity, there's just been a ton of hatred toward the Jews and towards Israel. And, and it's a sad legacy in the history of Christianity that that's been the case. But it's interesting that today the greatest supporters of Israel are evangelical Christians. And there are a lot of Christians today who really especially reach out to Jewish people who have more of an appreciation for the Jewish culture than the Jews do. And that won't automatically get them saved, but Jews today are more and more understanding that, hey, you guys are supporting us more than a lot of our own people. And, and there's even a sense, and I've talked to some Jewish non-believers who are kind of adamant and upset that we have tried to turn Jesus into a Gentile. And they're like, hey, wait a minute. Jesus was a Jew. That was Judaism. 
Christianity started as a sect of Judaism, right? Yeah, in a way. But it so quickly looked down their nose at at the Jews and didn't want anything to do with them. God's intention was to bless Gentiles so that then they would cause the Jews to go, hey, let us in. And, And so it... It hasn't always worked that way because we haven't had the heart that God wants us to have. But as we get on into chapter 11, and we'll go ahead and start it. We have a few minutes. Um, but we'll see that, that, uh, you know, that, that God's plan originally was to bless the Jews so that they would reach the Gentiles. And his plan now, a little different, he's blessing Gentiles, hoping that they'll reach the Jews. Verse 1, I say then, has God cast away his people? There are a whole lot of people who would say that he has, that the church took the place of Israel, and that now that little country, those Jewish people, they mean nothing to God. God's finished with them. Not so, and chapter 11 makes that very clear. Certainly not. But it's There are two different respects in which that's not so, in which certainly not is the case. And Paul goes on to say, I'm Jewish. So the first thing is, no, he hasn't thrown Israel away because they have an opportunity for the gospel just like everyone else does. And there are Jewish people getting saved all the time. But you're also going to see as we get later in the chapter that God has a national plan for Israel that God, I believe, as I read it, I can't see it any other way, really. Um, The notion of amillennialism that God's finished with Israel, when we see later on in chapter 11 about the times of the Gentiles and things like that, comparing it with Luke's gospel, you go, oh, he does have an eschatological plan, a future prophetic plan as well. But Paul says, but hey, look, I'm Jewish, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. He goes, remember after Elijah called fire down from heaven, had the great victory, killed the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel's threatening him, and he runs off into a cave, and he goes, I just want to die because I'm the only believer left. He goes, remember that? What does the divine response say to him? God said, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God has chosen to save people. And notice, though, Paul isn't just taking Jews and Gentiles and lumping them all together. Yes, it's certainly true that that Jews who get saved today become a part of the church, and yet he still sees them as Jews. That's interesting. He sees them as a part of the remnant. Um, They don't lose that distinction. And verse 6, and if by grace then it's no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it's of works, it's no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. 
So he says God has a remnant, and that remnant is only saved by grace, not by works. They are not getting saved by following the law. And there are people today who really get this wrong. There are people today who some of the messianic synagogues and things like that where the Jews become Christians, but they want to still live under the Jewish law and, and still have that restriction. Of course, there are Seventh-day Adventists who also want to put all Christians underneath the law. And Paul's making it clear, no, this is about grace. This isn't about works. The whole works thing didn't work. The message of the law was clear. This won't make you righteous. And so he says the remnant that gets saved have to get saved by grace. They don't get saved by the law. They don't get saved by keeping the Sabbath. They don't get saved by, you know, celebrating all the Jewish holidays and all that kind of stuff. It's simply grace. If, it, if, it, if they had to do work, then it wouldn't be grace. If it's grace, there's no works. This is a, a, a really clear delineation that I think we need to hold over our lives all the time. Is it grace or is it works? It cannot be both. It's either grace or it's works. Keep that straight. Keep that clear in our minds. It's grace. That's the good news. It's grace. And he says, what then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. He goes, so what are you saying? Most of the Jews didn't get it, and there were a handful of them that did get it, and they get saved, and all the rest just can't see it. Are you saying that they're blind? And he goes, yeah. And quoting Isaiah again, Isaiah 29, he says, Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And then quoting David in Psalm 69, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always so he says yeah they've been blinded now this doesn't seem fair to us why would god blind someone well when you go back and look at what isaiah was talking about look at what david was talking about it's in response to rejection that and, and there's a principle and we saw it happen with pharaoh and turning the children of israel loose if you harden your heart if you just keep saying no to god there's a point in which he goes, okay, fine. Now, all along, as he is making that offer of salvation, the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and of righteousness and so on, the Holy Spirit's drawing people. He's always done that throughout history. No one can come to God unless the Holy Spirit draws them. However, his drawing is not something that's irresistible. As the Calvinists teach irresistible grace, that if God draws you, you can't help it. There isn't anything in Scripture that sounds like that at all. The idea is he draws, he makes this offer, he extends it, but if you want to continue to reject him, be careful because there is a place that you can get to where now God says, okay, fine, I'll leave you alone. I'll leave you to your own devices. And in that respect, 
I'll harden your heart for you. Because I don't want you constantly on the fence if you're never going to decide. And that's why you see people who are so close and they're, you know, you can just sense they're almost ready and then all of a sudden they're just over it. And certainly there's something here that seems to be specifically toward the Jews that God goes, you've rejected me enough, I'm just going to make it so it's not very easy for you to see it. I'm going to conceal it because the offer of the gospel is so obvious in the Old Testament that there has to be some kind of blindness. Well, that blindness is a fruit of rejecting God over a long period of time. I look at Isaiah 53 and I go, how could a Jew read Isaiah 53 and not accept Jesus as their Messiah? How could a Jew not read the Old Testament and not realize, look at hundreds of fulfillments of prophecy? How could that, oh, it's, it's inconceivable. Well, after a progression of rejection, there are times, and it's not impossible for a Jew to get saved, but there is a hardness that partly is inflicted by God as a response to it being inflicted by people to themselves. And so he says, yeah, there, there is a hardening. There is a blindness. There is a, a limitation in some way because God adjusted, even as John's gospel in the first chapter talks about he came unto his own and his own received him not, so as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God, even to those who would believe on his name. And so God will make his offer, and he will try to a certain extent, but the time comes when he goes, I'm going to try another approach with you. I'm going to let you see what life feels like without God. It's why so many Jews today are atheists. It's funny, they feel something special about being Jewish. They identify with a national identity. Their hearts are broken by what happened in the Holocaust. Um, many of them use the Holocaust as their excuse for being atheists. And it's hard to figure. It's hard to explain, but it seems spiritually something's going on whereby God will not allow you to just be halfway there. And it's a good thing. God just won't let you stay on the fence. And sometimes he'll knock you off the fence because if you just kind of think that, yeah, you know, we kind of have God and it's the same God and everything, he goes, no, it's not, unless you put your faith in Jesus. So actually, I would rather have you be an atheist for a while so you can figure out what life feels like without God there. I think it's probably one reason why there's such an adamant movement today toward atheism and people writing books and crusading. And, and I don't get real disturbed about it. Some people really freak out about that. But I, in a lot of ways, I think people would be better off being an atheist than being somebody who believes in a God who's out there somewhere or believes in the God of Oprah or whatever, and they feel just enough of God to feel comfortable, I feel like, no, you're making up your own God. If you reject the God of the Bible, if you reject Jesus Christ, 
then why don't you become an atheist and see what that feels like? Why don't you just imagine that all of this just evolved? That's crazy. That's, that's just so blind. You, you couldn't believe it unless something was happening that was blinding you. But to me, the next step for an atheist is to meet Jesus Christ and to have faith in God. There are a whole lot of people who are somewhere in between there who will never take that step. But living life completely away from God is something that will bring you so much closer to ultimately recognizing what a relationship with God is all about. And so I don't question God's methodology. When sometimes that methodology means he pulls the the wool down over someone's eyes and goes, you know what, I'm just not going to let you see anything right now because you're not dealing with what you do see. And we have a great example in Israel, historically, where that happened. When, when the darkest hour came, it was right before the dawn. When the time came when it was things were terrible, they were just getting ready for repentance. And so I don't question... God's understanding of how best to bring people to true repentance. And so when he talks about Israel and saying that God has given them a spirit of stupor and, and eyes and ears that aren't, don't seem to be working and they're stumbling and their eyes are darkened, I know that if God does that, it's because it's the best way possible for him to bring people to himself because that's his heart. That's what he wants to do. And then... One more verse, verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And he's going to develop that some more. But all of this is a part of God wanting to bring the world to himself. God wanting to bring grace to everyone who's open to it. And God wanting especially to bring salvation to the children of Israel. And he will yet do that. He will bring that about. Unfortunately, there are a lot of casualties along the way, and there are a whole lot of people who had the opportunity who never, who never took it, and, and that's heartbreaking. But God's not finished yet, knows what he's doing, and I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sharing with us in such detail the, the brilliant plan that you have that's been unfolding, that's all a part of, of the church age, that's all a part of this time when predominantly Gentiles are getting saved. We're glad that, that you've done this, God, because if most of us were sitting around waiting for a Jew to share their faith... Um, it wouldn't have happened. So by your grace in revealing the truth to Paul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, who you made the apostle to the Gentiles, that was a great idea. It was an incredible plan. But Lord, help us to have your heart for those who are lost. Help us to have your heart for the lost children of Israel who don't know you. I thank you that we have your assurance that you're not finished with them. You're not finished with us either because every day you're drawing more Jews and Gentiles to faith in Jesus. Please help us to stick with grace. 
Help us to not clutter the picture up with religion. Help us to cling to the reality and the truth of the good news that is not by works, simply by grace. In Jesus' name, amen.